0: This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families.
1: 2020 may be over, but the effects of perhaps the most tumultuous year in most of our lifetimes will linger. The coronavirus pandemic, along with economic and political turmoil, were some of the events we found, and in many ways continue to find, shaping our lives. But also during 2020, we began to shed a greater light on the systemic racism and social inequities that nearly every aspect of our national framework is built upon. The calls, screams really for justice after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and countless others, the shooting of Jacob Blake, all of this skyrocketed the conversation and drive for change in the way communities of color are disproportionately viewed and unfairly treated. And child welfare is in the middle of all of this. Black and Native children are over surveilled, over policed and over removed by the child welfare system. Thank you so much for joining in this episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. We continue looking at what child welfare learned from 2020, and this episode explores systemic racism. Currently, public systems by design hyper-surveil Black, Native, and in many jurisdictions, Latinx families. Community-based supports and basic safety net supports are minimal, And child welfare's response to helping families in need results in high rates of removal for black and native children. We spoke with Maya Pendleton and Shadi Husayar from the Center for the Study of Social Policy. The CSSP has joined with the University of Houston Graduate College for Social Work for the Upend Movement. Uh, UPEND seeks to end the practice of state-sanctioned separation of children from their families as a response to social problems like food insecurity, poverty, lack of affordable and safe housing, and lack of meaningful prevention services. UPEND also seeks to reimagine how we support and serve families and eliminate the root causes that create conditions for harm to occur. In this conversation, we we dive into how agencies can help drive their own change to effectively and objectively recognize the inequities within their policies, procedures and actions. We talk more about the UPEND movement and what abolishing the current child welfare system looks like and why it's so important that we look at this not merely from a child welfare perspective, but pulling back and reviewing the inequities across our entire society this may be one of the most important episodes we've brought to you so far. I thank you for taking the time to listen, and hopefully this can spark you toward conversations, inquiries, and actions to honestly review your work. Okay, let's get to it. Our conversation with Maya Pendleton and Shadi Husayar from the Center for the Study of Social Policy here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Maya and Shadi, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us here uh, on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And And let me start by really thinking about the agencies themselves, because when we talk about the shift or really unveiling uh, the racist past or tendencies that agencies have, there's got to be a willingness to change. And so, Shadi, let me start with you, How are agencies actually raising the questions to themselves uh, about their own racist past?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, there's a movement in the field, um, although I think some are further along than others, to really just start to consider and to implement these equity-driven and anti-racist policies and practices. So some of this has been motivated by the way that systemic racism, which has been alive and well. Um, since the very founding of our country, but has been forced to the forefront of our collective consciousness in recent months Um, by the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others um, has really sort of driven a lot of systems to really start to think about this. And I think for some data has been and can be a big driver of these conversations because it can make the case clearly that there are inequities, gaps and disparities, that these are real that they exist um, and it can help us both evaluate and measure our progress in tackling these issues. I also think that the pandemic has brought into sharper focus the deep-rooted inequities, um, both the persistent structural and systemic inequities in our institutions, in our systems, in our society. And it's really brought into clear view um, that white supremacy and racism Uh, often deny Black people and other communities of color most protections, and that the pandemic is no different. So we're seeing clearly disproportionate toll of the pandemic on communities of color. And I think that's been a driver. And I think for child welfare systems, this is really an opportunity to make some meaningful changes.
1: You you touched on a key word there, meaningful change, because having the difficult conversation is one thing. But Finding out where change can be implemented and actually driving that forward is that's the real difficulty. The conversations are only the first, very first step. To actually tackle the issue, Maya, what is it that an agency really, really needs if they're going to, like Shadi said, have meaningful change?
3: So I I think that we've seen um, some agencies make concerted efforts to, one, yes, look at the data, which is always a good starting point, um, to changing their practice, but also how they view families. You know, I think that um, agencies have said things like, you know, we haven't really named that family preservation, for example, is a real priority. So um, shifting those type of changes, looking at practice, looking at policies, looking at um, what workers are mandated to do with families and how do we shift that, looking at how often the agency is involving law enforcement and um, their work with families. I think that those are all meaningful shifts that agencies can make. Um, internally, looking at their workforce? Um, Are there certain neighborhoods that are targeted? And again, a lot of this goes back to data, but I think that it's also a mix of um, it's data, but it's also policy, it's practice, it's the mission and thinking about what is driving the work. Um, And and I think another big thing is so often child welfare, I think a lot of agencies have the um, mission of protecting children, which we all here want to protect children. But I think also thinking about um, shifting that focus to what makes families safe, what makes families whole. I think that when we when we start with families and thinking about the whole ecosystem that um, surrounds children, um, separation from children and things that you might do in the name of protecting children, but that are actually traumatizing parents, I think that makes it more clear, right? If we're thinking about um, how do we support families? How do we support communities? Um, So I know that in our work, you know, sort of across the country, we have seen agencies um, take up that work and start to make those shifts. Um, And those are real meaningful changes that they can do now.
1: Yeah, it really gets into the definition of what does protecting children look like, because it doesn't necessarily always look like removing children from the home. What does strengthening families look like? And it's not exactly a, uh, you know, a check this box, take this training, and then come back, and then you'll get your children back. I mean, so it's it's an execution of, of what does this look like. You know, when we had talked before recording, um, a lot of the conversation, you know, centers, at the policy level, at the execution of the procedures, but there's the, the behaviors and the individuals that are involved just as much. And three things that that were brought up in that conversation, and I'd love for you to expound on these if you can, guys, is will, resources, and time, and what kind of those three entities have and and, and why they are so crucial. To change. What, again, walk me through will resources and time?
2: So I can start. I think, you know, we have to recognize that the bulk of the child welfare system's resources are now dedicated to deep end interventions like foster care or congregate care or residential treatment, and far fewer resources to meaningfully supporting families. So until that changes, I think child welfare's response will be inadequate and beyond that, often harmful for families. Um, so there's, there's opportunities, so Family First is one, it's really helping to shift some of our focus here into prevention of entry into care, but we need much more and much further upstream. We need consistent leadership and a sustained commitment to racial equity. Um, and that's hard because we have turnover in child welfare, we have very few initiatives that are sustained, but this work really requires leadership and a sustained commitment. And I think at the leadership level, we need leaders of color in child welfare. And this really requires a shift in our resources, and our priorities, and in our power. Um, It requires a commitment to anti-racist, equity-driven decision-making. And part of that, again, goes back to our commitment to data. And when we talk about data, we're talking about, are you disaggregating your data? Are you integrating community voices into your research? Are you looking at developing survey data that's really looking at dimensions of intersectionality? Are you using data to look at the racial impact of your work in the communities you're serving? Are you looking to see if you're making improvements and having positive impacts for communities of color? It also means that we have to be investing in training and capacity building. I think often around capacity building, we see that it's just that equity or racial equity sits with just one person. But we have to be creating a workforce that's culturally responsive and equity driven. And I think we have to be bringing in culturally responsive services and supports. And again, Family First here can help us by helping us build out. The prevention services array but we have to be investing in building the evidence for culturally responsive services so that we can move them into the four-way clearinghouse and we have to be partnering with agencies with community partners with parents and working in a different way and i think that all takes time and resources and intentionality and well
1: there's a big question of where does somebody start right and and you know just a few minutes ago we started talking about uh, an agency's willingness to change and Data, as you guys have mentioned a couple of times, is a, a, a great receipt on what have your actions provided, right? Where are you? The data tells you ob- objectively, you know, um, what, what have the results been of the system you've been uh, uh, implementing? But when an agency now wants to take a look and say, okay, how did we get here? They are looking to unpack those processes and tools and, and how their staff actually implements those processes and tools. But to look at your own system objectively can be difficult. Where would you advise an agency on how to start to look at their people, processes, and tools as objectively as possible, knowing that they've got to kind of turn the lens on themselves?
3: Well, I I mean, I would say that it it can be hard, but I also think that sometimes we overcomplicate things. If our goal is to serve Children, families, and make sure that they are safe and supported at home. Um, and those goals are not being met. You know, I think it becomes almost very simple. I think that most people who um, work with children and families, work with child welfare. Um, you know, they they have the intention of serving children and families well. Um, so, so I think you know that's a realistic place to start. Are are we doing? Work well. And I think that because child welfare, moves fast, there's timelines, there's check boxes, you know, that all these things that workers have to do, if they have time to slow down and really think about what would the children and families that we're serving say about our work, um, you know, it might be a hard look, but I think that a lot of children and families, especially in Black and brown communities, would say they aren't happy. Um, that they're living in fear that their kids are going to be taken away. And um, if agencies are to start there and work out from there, I think that they would be in a better place.
2: Yeah, I'll go ahead and add. I think that's totally right, Maya. I think centering what it means to sort of center our work um, on families means that we have to really bring them into um the work and in understanding what, what do they need? How do we meaningfully meet their needs? I think there's a couple other approaches, and we use a few of these at CSSP. One is an institutional analysis, which is really a qualitative approach that we take often in child welfare systems, where we're looking at things like case processing maps, doing interviews, observations, case reviews. And the whole idea is to help uncover those problematic assumptions, the policies, the practices, um, and really focus on the factors that lead to racial disparity and services and outcomes. And by asking how something comes about, the IA really helps us reveal the systemic problems and help identify the ways of working better. Um, but there's also tools like waste equity impact assessments. And so those really look at how a proposed action or a decision is really going to affect different racial and ethnic groups. And it can help us unpack those actual and anticipated and even unanticipated effects of policies, institutional practices, programs, decisions. And the idea is we're taking an intentional look at thinking about the impact of something that we're we're proposing or doing on different populations. And again, to Maya's point about Uh, engaging and hearing from families, really understanding and capturing the experiences of children and youth and families of color in systems and asking the questions about what are their needs, how can we support them um, to make sure that we're better aligning what the system does with with, what families need.
1: You know, Shadi, you had mentioned something earlier about making sure that there are leaders of color within these agencies. When CSSP is working with an agency to, 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 to unpack things, you talked about the unintentional consequences that happen. Are you finding that agencies are almost surprised? While the data may show the disproportionality, the data may show the systemic racism, that when it comes to the individual leaders or, or even down to the, the caseworker level, folks are shocked – That the data tells them something that they may have not felt and then, you know, turn to you and say, well, I'm not racist. No, but the data and the system is giving you, you know, complete inequities across the board. Are you seeing kind of the the light come on for people or for people to realize, my gosh, this is really how we are acting?
2: I think in some ways. And that's that's really a starting point. is just acknowledging the harms that are coming to children and families of color in child welfare, and that these harms are being produced and maintained through the policies and practices of our system. So this is hard for a lot of people, right? Because as Maya said too, people are coming into child welfare with good intentions. They wanna help families. So seeing that and acknowledging it, um, that we're often harming families is really tough. But I think it's part of how we get to that commitment to doing this work. And then there's other shifts that I think really need to happen in policies and we can talk more about those. But I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a reckoning, right? In terms of what is the data telling us? What are we seeing in our systems? We're intending to do good things. Are we doing those good things?
1: So we've gotten here, all right? This is where we are. This is what the data is is telling us. And so, Maya, we see the data. We see the, the poor outcomes for children and families involved in child welfare, especially for, for Black and Native children and families. So asking the big picture question, how is it that the system is producing these kind of outcomes?
3: Well, um, I, I think that if you were to look at the history and the formation of the child welfare system, um, the, the child welfare system's primary intervention has always been separating children from their families. Um, that has been the intervention. And we know that separating children from their families, even if it is a day, you know, the research says that that is painful and it is traumatic for children and it is traumatic for families. Um, so I think that the history of the child welfare has system has been one of pain and trauma for the families that it's um, interacted with. And I think that when you think about um, the the racism that Black children have experienced, um, the way that so in so many ways that Black mothers are criminalized by this system, the worst assumptions are made about their ability to care for their children. Um, the way that Native families have, Native children have almost seemed to be better off um, in white households by this system. That is the operating assumptions um, of the system. So when you take the history and and pile it home with the, the assumptions that the system is operating on. Um, It's honestly not surprising that um, Black and Native children and families have worse outcomes because that is how, back to the institutional analysis, we think about how a system is organized and the child welfare system is organized to have these um, very harsh punishment-oriented interventions with children and families um, with racist beliefs about Black and Native and Latino families. And so we see that they don't fare well when the system is involved.
2: I think, Maya, you pointed out the racist roots of the system. So if we really look back at what we really should be talking about as a family regulation system, that really took shape as that system began to serve fewer and fewer white children and more children of color. And as this happened, our federal and state dollars shifted to paying for out-of-home care and much less investment in families and in home services. So that is the that is the history of the system. And as Maya said, it's not designed to promote family unity, health, and well-being. So it's doing what it's intended to do. It's putting the responsibility of caring for our children on parents, solely on parents. And it's not acknowledging that there are broader sort of systemic issues and needs that families have. So most children families of color, again, as Maya said, are coming into child welfare because all those other systems, because our safety net has failed them. And often for reasons of poverty. And so what does child welfare do? We force them to take parenting class or to participate in a program they don't really need. When what they really need is stable housing or food assistance or access to childcare while they work. And so child welfare piles on the requirements, it surveils and punishes them. It brings them deeper and deeper into the system with each decision point. And it's really based in that faulty premise that there's something wrong with these families, rather than looking at social conditions and inequities that both bring children and families into child welfare's attention and then deeper into the system. And so that's, you know, I think we're getting exactly what we pay for. (laughs) And that's the the challenge with child welfare.
1: And I'm actually going to want to go down that path a little bit further in a little bit to talk about maybe the the larger societal changes that need to occur because child welfare is a system that does not operate alone. It is amongst the human service continuum uh, that that involves everything and more that Shadi had just mentioned. Um, But let's talk about Change and the upend movement that uh, the the Center for Study of Social Policy is partnering with the University of Houston's Graduate School of Social Work. Um, guys, can you explain to me a little bit? You know, take me back and and walk me through the upend movement.
3: Sure. So the the upend movement, put plainly, is a movement to abolish the child welfare system. Um, it is a partnership between the Center for the Study of Social Policy, CSSP, and University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work. Um, but even within that partnership, this is really meant to be a movement that is collaborative, but collaborative with um, families and communities who have been saying for a long time now that the child welfare system has been harmful. It functions as a surveillance and a policing system, and it needs to end. And this is not the support that families want. Um, so with Up End, we are really looking at how do we move towards abolishing the child welfare system. And what that means is, you know, we recognize that there were um, reforms to the child welfare system as we are working to abolish it but we want to make sure that those reforms are reforms that are um, shrinking the system um, Joyce Mcmillan who is a, a mother and an activist with experience in the child welfare system always says shrink 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 gone so that is our goal so shrinking the system shoring up supports for families outside of the system you know as we've talked about housing, um, work support, childcare, healthcare, all the supports that families need and then returning power um, back to communities, which I think is really important. How the child welfare system functions now is that families are told what they need to do in order to be in compliance, right? But there's not that much room, even if families are asking for supports, you know, child welfare sort of has a supports that they can give families, but there's not that much room for families to make decisions about their families, where their children should go, what they need, what services are useful for them. Um, So it's really about returning that power and understanding that um, one, children are safer and healthier and happier at home with their families and their communities. So making sure that that's possible, um, but also making sure that we are trusting families. You know, child welfare sets up a relationship of distrust. That's why we have to watch families in child welfare, right? We don't trust them to do the right thing. But we're saying, no, families should be and are the first responders. They know what's best for their families. They know what they need. And how do we create a world where we don't need child welfare anymore? Where families have the resources, have the supports and are able to be autonomous and make decisions about their families. And where we're no longer seeing um, black and native families and communities really um, torn apart and separated and surveilled by the child welfare system.
2: Yeah, I would say that I agree with all of that. That's right. I think, in terms of what we're needing to invest in, we have to be thinking about cash assistance, healthcare, housing, safe and affordable housing, food assistance, universal healthcare, um, a child allowance, jobs for, for with sustainable wages. Um, so, these are all the kinds of things that we need to be building out outside of child welfare. Um, and as I think Maya said, we can still strategize about changes that need to be made in child welfare, right? While we do that, but all those changes have to be directed toward dismantling the whole thing. So I, I think some of the examples of some of those other things are, um, you know, ending the use of congregate care placements for children and youth, so really thinking about um, eliminating policies that use arbitrary timelines to terminate parental rights. Um, Thinking about really rethinking mandatory reporting, right? So over 50% of Black children in the US are gonna be investigated by the time they're 18 for potential child abuse. So what does that tell us? It tells us we're really good at surveilling and racism-derived reporting, but we're really not good at predicting maltreatment. So I think we have to be thinking about all those things. And there are other pieces that are sort of strategies like blind removals, right? The idea that you um because, because racism inherently derives child welfare decision making, can we can we sort of think about how we reduce the element of bias? But then I question that because I, I think should we even be making decisions about removals when we can't do them without bias. So I think there's there's questions about some of those um, you know strategies, but I think the attempt is to try to get at some of these issues. I think we also have to be thinking about informal kin supports for kids and how we better support them outside of child welfare. Um, so I think these are just some of the ways in which um, we can think about shrinking and you know improving the existing system at the same time.
1: So you just were able to to identify a number of areas where, and I like the term shrinking, right? Reducing or abolishing or getting getting rid of things within the child welfare system itself. But as we had just mentioned a little bit ago, and you guys had had pointed to a, a number of these areas, I'd like to get a sense. Of what about the society at large? What about our society would would really have to change to be able to implement all of those areas that you'd like to shrink, right? To execute that way and really upend the child welfare system?
3: Well, you know, upend is focused on child welfare, but you know, abolition is a big movement, right? And it's a it's a big um movement to Abolish what many abolitionists are saying. We live in a carceral state. We live in a state where um black communities especially are surveilled, they're police and they're punished and they're hurt by it. So um so it's child welfare, but it's also thinking about how do we how do we live in a society where this no longer occurs, where we where we no longer think that this is okay. So it's part of that. It's challenging the carceral state, the prison industrial complex, the policing of Black communities and families. But as Shadi said, it is also living in a society where we say it is not acceptable that families are homeless. We have plenty of housing. We can do something about it. It's not acceptable. It is not acceptable that kids go to bed hungry in this country. That's not okay. Um, so So it's really challenging the root causes. Again, getting back to why are children coming into the system, and why do we live in a society um, where these things are said to be okay, but we know that they're not because people are suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's so it's really about changing um, how we think about what it means to also be in community with each other, um, but really challenging racism and white supremacy, and all these systems that are just. Proportionally hurting and have always been hurting um, Black families. It's really rethinking and reshaping society and what we're okay with and thinking about how we want to live in the society that we want to live in.
2: And I think part of that reimagining is really thinking about what do all children and families need, right, to thrive and you know, I see the fee we've developed an anti-racist early childhood platform, and it's really about policies that are going to help support all children and families. Like Maya said, you know, a healthy housing guarantee, a national child allowance, healthcare for all, really the types of policies that we need, access to justice, living wages for people, childcare and early learning for everyone. And if we truly have these meaningful supports for families, um, in our safety net and that we're focused on um, bringing sort of the power back to families and to communities and supporting them there, I think we will see that systems like child welfare won't really have a meaningful role in that society. I think the challenge is um, we're not very comfortable in, in doing that work of really supporting the whole family Thinking about, you know, meeting the needs of kids and families of color, really being intentional about dismantling some of these injustices and wrongs and creating a meaningful safety net that really supports families rather than creating these um, restrictions that are really tied to to racism and other issues. So I think, you know, really building out that that safety net um, is a big part
1: of this. And with so many components of that safety net, and they all need to work in conjunction together with the same goals and purposes in mind, I I think it, it makes everybody kind of take a step back and say, listen, if we're talking about ending the systemic racism of the child welfare system, you need to pull back even further to recognize the child welfare system isn't the only systemic racism racist system uh, because you can point to everything that child welfare touches and realize that it's not just child welfare though we're talking at least with the upend movement of where we can we can focus it but it is as as maya mentioned it is an overarching society globally systemic in terms of like housing education the criminal justice system child welfare and you know law enforcement you know everything from food deserts to you know, uh, how, how kids are treated in, in various school districts and that, and we can go down down the list. Um, and so that kind of gets this big 50,000-foot view of, across how we deliver services, uh, you know, across the nation. But when we start talking about the, the, the individual within the child welfare system, um, when it comes to upending an entire system, we're talking about processes and policies and, and tools, What about the individual caseworkers and the individual trainers and managers? Somebody can look at this and say, "Well, I'm only one person within the large system." Where do they? Where does an individual who's a professional in this field who wants to see change? Where do they fit in within driving driving a change for the better?
2: Well, I'll I'll talk about a little bit. I think um, again, I think even at the individual level, at the caseworker level, we have to be sort of willing to acknowledge you know, what the harms that that have come to children of families of color in our work. We have to be able to see sort of in ourselves um, the implicit bias that may be driving our decision making. We have to be um, open to trainings and building our capacity around cultural humility, around implicit bias, around understanding both the, the structural racism and discrimination that are part of child welfare decision making now and making a commitment to doing our work differently. I think um, ultimately leadership is a really big driver of helping sort of the frontline workers sort of be able to do this work, right? They have to be able to have the, the time, the resources, the ability to do training, all of those pieces. But I think that at the individual level, we can all make that commitment um, to taking a strengths-based work, you know, approach to our work with families. Really, I, really seeing that we often don't see families. Um, in a very positive way, we sort of focus on on or perceive deficits and really have this frame of like going in and investigating and focusing just on the child and even sort of making connections, meaningful connections with families in our work and seeing them as, as people, as families who are just trying to do right by their by their by their families and sort of trying to take that um truly like partnership collaborative approach to our work with families can really change some of that shift some of our like approach to work with families and shift some of how we think about it. I think often, um, we're so risk averse and so, so focused on safety and child welfare that that sort of puts up our blind, like we don't see, we don't see anything else. And I think that's, that's also a bigger systemic challenge for child welfare is because there's so much driven by so sort of these awful stories, um, that, that happen, these tragedies that happen, that drives practice so much more than anything else, than like sort of the realities of what families are dealing with, when, when the majority of families are really just dealing with um, lack of resources, you know, lack of concrete supports, um, poverty. And so just sort of having that understanding and sort of making a commitment to going and pushing your work with families in a different way and reconciling sort of what what you come to the table with and how you wanna do your work, I think is a part of it.
1: This also gets for that individual caseworker or really at at the manager, at the trainer level, to stop and take a pause at times because folks are moving so quickly in so many cases. And and, and the load kind of presses this this urgency to to respond. Everything is about putting out the immediate fire and, and we tend to rely on the processes and the tools at our disposal. Uh, but to take a step back and start to ask the right question of all right what what's best for the family versus where's the next bed you know and because that's the process and tool that maybe we need to take a deeper look at and 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 to use the term upend so Maya how do we respond to I guess you know when we ask about those questions what we value how do we respond to the values that are that are driven really by these these communities and families versus rather than what the system may value. How how do we respond? How do we change?
3: Well, I think one, we have to ask and care about what the response is. Um, So, so families, I think that most families will, will tell you what they need Um, and responding to that. And again, trusting them to know what's best for their families and believing them. Um, I think also, you know, the nature of child welfare is like people who are not from the community are often entering the community and then deciding, you know, what's going on in that community. But again, I, I think it's a lot about, it's a lot about listening. It's a lot about support. And, and that can't happen um, when racism is present, um, when bias is present, because then you're not able to listen and trust what families are saying. Um, so, so I think, again, I think that, these movements and up end has to be led by demands I don't know what is best for families and I think that everyone should sort of get comfortable with saying that right caseworkers managers they should get comfortable saying I don't know there's no way I, I can't go to Shadi's house and tell her what's best for her kids I don't know her kids they're lovely but I don't know them and I think that I think that you know we that in our personal relationships. But for some reason, and I think that we know what those reasons are when it comes to families and child welfare, we pretend that somehow we know. And I think that um, it really takes a shift. And again, those logics that are based on surveillance and policing and racism to shift and let communities tell us um, what they know. Again, I think that we also have to listen what's working well with families. I know that something we've been talking about is so often with our work, you know, have already made our benchmarks for what success looks like. But I think a really interesting thing that you can do is ask a family, what does success look like for you? And go off of that. And so success might look very different for different families. It's not always a one size fits all. It's not always one size fits all for a community. But letting them tell you what success and what safety and what home looks like for them, I think is a great place to start.
2: I agree. I think some of, you know, we have some principles around what does anti-racist, what does an anti-racist system look like? And two of the pieces that we have are one is to share power with families and the other is to implement family-centered policies, really, that meet the needs of kids and families of color. It's really hard to imagine our current child welfare system being able to do either of those things. Um, because it's not it's not designed that way. But to Maya's point, like that's part of the reimagining is that we need to share power families, we need to have family-centered policies, we need to build on family strengths, we need to really bring those with lived experience into our workforce and into sort of the way we work with families. There's a lot of these pieces that I think just child welfare is not structured in a way to be able to do at this point. Um, But that—that's what makes it work for families, right? Is if it's led by them, if it's you know envisioned by the community, it's you know responsive to the community. Those are the—that's
1: what makes it work. Putting children and families at the center of the system, as opposed to the recipients of the system, and and it sounds so simple, but where we've got where we found ourselves along the way is, and, and, and Maya mentioned it, where the child welfare system isn't always supposed to have the answers, but should be the ones asking all of the questions. And who are you asking the questions of? You know, it tends to say, where, where are you valuing? Are you valuing what's best for the family? What's best for this situation? We'll ask them and find out. And it does, it shifts, and it's a word uh, you just brought up of power. And who has the power within the system? And, you know, we're not always supposed to have the answers because every family, like you met, like Maya mentioned, every family uh, is, is different. For anyone within an agency that recognizes the data, but they want to start to make that change, no matter where they would fall in the system. Guys, what would you recommend for someone who's listening to this and says, you know, you know, I want to make a change and and I, uh, I want to be able to do the best thing I can today or tomorrow? The first piece of advice you would give them.
2: I, I think you, from my perspective, I think you really need to bring leadership to and a commitment to advancing anti-racist policies and practices. You have to sort of lead with bringing that um, to the table and then starting to unpack the ways in which you do the work, which, which includes sort of looking at your policies, looking at your practices, looking at your capacity building in your, um, in your workforce. Um, you know, asking the hard questions, doing some of that, like shared work of acknowledging what what our system does and how we want to do better. I think that for me, that's one of the first places to start.
3: I agree. I also think that, you know, on a sort of macro level, I think that so often we're, you know, knee deep in the work and we don't take a step back to think about what do we really, why do why did we come to this work? Why did I become a social worker? Why am I here? And then in an ideal world, what, what would this work look like if I was doing it well and if families were safe and protected? And, and again, getting back to the mission of making sure your priorities are to keep families together, to not punish parents, um, to reduce harm and reduce trauma to children and families and their parents. Um, to make sure that they're in their communities, to make sure that they're with relatives if possible. I think um, looking at the priorities, thinking about why you started this work, thinking about the world that you want to see and the world that you want to live in, and how do you help create that world um, brings some really good answers.
2: Yeah, I love that, Maya. I think the idea that can we look at ourselves and say, we want to promote family unity. We want to promote the health and well-being of children and families, like that's our goal. If we can say that, then we can really start to take a a real look at the ways in which we may be failing. Yeah.
1: Shadi Houshiar, Maya Pendleton, Thank you guys so much for spending your time with us here and, and the Center for uh, Study of Social Policy and, and your work not only in, in, the, in the up-end movement, but uh, for, for spending that time and, and for helping us all kind of unpack where we are and, and get us to a point where, again, we, we, we don't have to have these child welfare conversations if we're able to abolish the system, but recognizing that it's a societal societal uh, uh, need across the board as well, but can be implemented at each individual level uh, as, as people go about about the day and, and go about their work. I th- thank you guys so much for your time and, and for your energy and, and joining us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast. Thank
3: you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for having us. Not a surprise that this conversation is really a deeper continuation of conversations that have been occurring around child welfare for a while. From the Family First Prevention Services Act and other primary prevention related efforts to exploring the data that demonstrates disproportionality within child welfare. Hey, head on over to childwelfare.gov and on this episode's page, just search podcasts. We'll have links to a number of resources, including more information on the upend movement, uh, information addressing the inequities within child welfare, along with the Information Gateway publication on racial disproportionality. We'll also point you to other episodes looking at the Family First Prevention Services Act and other topics we've addressed under the heading, What Did Child Welfare Learn from 2020? Hey, please subscribe to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. You can find us at Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We really enjoy being able to share the insights, innovations, and perspectives surrounding child welfare practice that can hopefully aid in your work with the children and families in your community. Again, my thanks to Maya Pendleton and Shadi Hushiar from the Center for the Study of Social Policy for this important conversation. And as always, my thanks to you for joining us for this and for all the episodes of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.